So, uh, but anyway, really excited about Mark coming up to teach. Uh, and the text that we're going to be in is Ezra, uh, or, that, or at least we're going to launch out from, is going to be Ezra chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. Uh, getting to Ezra is a little bit uh, tricky. You go, if you might want to start at Psalms and go left, you'd have Job. If you're turning left, then you have Esther, then Nehemiah, then Ezra. And we're going to look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 6 through 10. Ezra 7, verse 6 through 10. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him from all that he granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, and the singers and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. I usually teach at the university, so I usually use PowerPoint. I'm going to try and make it work. So if it's your first time at uh, Redeemer, sorry you're getting the like B team here, but uh, we'll, we'll do what we can. Um, as we come down to the scripture, let me ask you, though, to pray with me. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray for me and for us that we would be attentive to it, that though it is an ordinary means of grace, we would not be indifferent to it, that instead you would incline our hearts to see your glory, and that we would not only comprehend, but that we would apprehend, that we would indeed take hold of your truths. And so I pray that we would see our need for your word, trusting that you will work through it to conform us to the image of your Son. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. All right. Move on if you want to see him. All right. So we've just celebrated Christmas, uh, and for some, uh, some of you, it may have been among the most memorable Christmases that you've ever had. Um, for others, it may have passed without real joy, without real celebration. Um, maybe in the busyness and craziness and preparations for dinner. Um, this was a year where the twinkling LED lights on your tree uh, distracted you from the one who was the true light. Um, perhaps in the gift giving and gift getting. Uh, you lost sight of the one who's the perfect gift. Uh, maybe it was just another meh Christmas. Um, this is, uh, we all think, I know that we all have Christmases like this. I know more of mine have been like that, probably than haven't. Um, and there's a reason, after all, that uh, Kevin has spent the past two weeks uh, self-consciously calling us to uh, remember the reason for the season and reminding us that this isn't trite, right? And that's because our default mode of operation simply isn't to look for the glory of Jesus. It isn't to see it. And so if Ezra 7 isn't exactly a classic holiday text, it nevertheless offers a poignant reminder, I think, that we need to remember, that we need reminders like the one Kevin offered, and that they come for the most part through what theologians call ordinary means of, uh, of grace, um, which is to say through things that don't appear supernatural, um, but that the Lord uses to sustain and empower us in our faith, to encourage us and to convict us um, and to enable us to persevere in the faith until, we've, until our races are done, until we've run our races and we're united for eternity uh, with Christ. I'm going to spare you the debates the theologians have about um, what constitutes an ordinary means of grace, and we'll instead note that if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, uh, 
Uh, you've already seen how God has encouraged you in your faith through seemingly, through seemingly mundane or ordinary things. Uh, through the preaching and teaching of God's word as we gather each week uh, to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Uh, through the sacraments, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, which remind us uh, of God's faithfulness to us, uh, of his covenantal promises. Uh, through seeking God humbly through prayer, right, which reminds us of our dependence on him. Uh, through fellowship with other believers who encourage us and then who hold us accountable to live worthy of the calling uh, we have as children of God and through the word of God. And it's the last of these, the word of God, obviously, that we're going to focus on with uh, Ezra's verse, the passage from Ezra today. But I want to call attention to their ordinariness because their ordinariness can lull us to sleep, right? We can go through seasons where we just don't feel like going to church. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen to me in 2020, right? Because it happened to me in 2019 and in 2018 and in 2017, right? Uh, there'll uh, feel times where we don't want to incline our hearts to the Word of God. There'll come times where we don't, when we'll just feel like tuning out the sermon. It happened to you today, right? Um, but when we're lulled to sleep, we're placing our spiritual health in real danger. So let's come to, uh, uh, well, basically to give away the ending at the beginning, my hope for uh, me and for us as a church is, a, is that as the new year approaches and we begin thinking about resolutions, um, that we would hold up Ezra as a model for us in the coming year, and that we as individuals and as a church would set our hearts to study the Bible with the aim of applying and practicing what we learn um, in there in our lives, and that having done so, we wouldn't pass up opportunities to teach it to others. And so um, this is the right order, right? So Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and then he set it to do it, and then uh, to teach the statutes and rules to Israel. We're to seek we're to do, and then we're to teach, right? And it's really uh, the first one that's going to occupy our attention. But as I stand up here teaching, I can tell you that they are, are all weighing on me. And anyone who stood up and taught the, uh, the word of the Lord before understands that. So that's where we're heading. Along the way, I want us to see first God's sovereignty. Then, secondly, I want us to see our desperate need for the word. And finally, I want to see some ways that we can be sure that we're rightly approaching the word of God. So let's begin by backing up and looking at some of this context. So much of what we know about Ezra is found in verse 6. Uh, we know he's among the exiles in Babylon. We know that he was a scribe. Uh, we know that his knowledge of the, law of, the Moses, of, the, of the law of Moses was excellent enough to merit notice. Like all the scribes, you would think, would have some knowledge of the law of Moses. Um, but he appears to have been particularly skilled because it's singled out. We also see that he's won favor with Artaxerxes, who's the ruler of Babylon, um, and it tells us why he'd won that favor, because the hand of the Lord was upon him. Okay, uh, We'll get to what he did in a minute, uh, but just in terms of who Ezra was, uh, Ezra's not the most familiar of uh, Old Testament uh, figures, but we can gather that he was probably the author of the book of Ezra, right? That seems pretty self-evident. Uh, he was also probably the uh, author of First and Second Chronicles, which might be less self-evident. Um, according to Jewish tradition, he compiled the Old Testament, so he didn't write the Old Testament, all of it, but he compiled it. He put it all together. And some credit him with writing Psalm 119. Um, this is much more contested, but some read it as a summation of his teaching and preaching to the exiles uh, as they returned from Babylon. Okay, so we have our main character. We have Ezra, who's a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, and on whom the hand of the Lord was resting. Well, what's the broader context? Well, uh, to begin with, he's living in exile, so it's obviously after the destruction of both the northern and southern kingdoms right? Um, 
And the book of Ezra was originally and uh, was originally bigger than it was, right? Ezra and Nehemiah, which is the book that follows in the Old Testament, were once one book. Then they got divided, I think, by Jerome into First and Second Ezra. And then in uh, fifteen. 60, the Geneva Bible attached Nehemiah to the second book, um, and it sort of stayed that way since. But in, in some ways, the fact that they were once one book makes a lot of sense, because the books document the return of Israel from Babylon, and they center their accounts on three men, the lives of three men, Zerubbabel, who's a descendant of David, Ezra, who's a scribe, and Nehemiah, who's a cupbearer. Very different men, very different roles, uh, but all of them accomplished God's, end in, God's ends in rebuilding Jerusalem. And if we were to have a systematic study, as we usually do here at Redeemer, and walk through the scriptures here, um, what would strike us most as we walk through Ezra and Nehemiah uh, is the message of God's sovereignty in accomplishing his purposes. Let me just give you a quick thumbnail sketch to show you what I mean here. Uh, so Second Kings ends with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar carrying away Israel into exile. But it's nevertheless clear that God is in control, right? Indeed, God's already called this shot. Jeremiah, who prophesied during the reigns of the last five uh, kings of Judah, has already identified the duration of the exile. We're not going to take you there, but if you were to go to Jeremiah 25, you would see that Jeremiah has prophesied that it would last 70 years. Okay? Now, generations earlier, Isaiah had actually named the person who would rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Go to Isaiah 44, 28, you'll see that the name is Cyrus. And if we had more time, there's a lot we could do with this. Right? Because Isaiah also prophesied that God would do it for his own purposes, not because Cyrus was seeking him. So Isaiah 45 actually begins with an address to Cyrus. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Uh, and then in verse four, uh, verse 4, I name you, though you do not know me. Right? God's in complete control here. So as Ezra opens, Israel then is in exile. Jerusalem is in ruin. But uh, after 70 years, just as he promised he would, God begins to move. And that happens in verse 1. Right, And so in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he made proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So as an aside, this last phrase, he is the God who is in Jerusalem, is an indication that Cyrus isn't actually seeking God in any meaningful way. He thinks God's just one of the gods. He's the God of Judah, right? All right. Um, and so Cyrus sends Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, and uh, one of the ancestors of Jesus, actually, back to the ruins of Jerusalem to rebuild this temple. As uh, Zerubbabel does so, he runs into some problems. Uh, and in fact, some of Israel's enemies conspired to stop work on the temple for 16 years. Then Zerubbabel begins to rebuild it. The local leaders want to stop it, but there's a new king, so they're not sure if they should. If, if, uh, if they should. Uh, Ezra actually makes clear uh, why this is. Because the eye of the Lord was, uh, was on them, is what Ezra 5.5 says. And instead they write the new king, Darius, who orders a search that leads to the discovery of Cyrus's original decree. And so Darius recommissions the work, and the temple is finished by the sixth year of Darius's reign. So if you're keeping track at home, that's now two kings, neither of whom worship God, who have facilitated the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel. So when Ezra comes on the scene, um, the temple's already rebuilt, but God's still working here. And in fact, a third king is about to assist Israel's return. So we can go to Ezra 7.1. Right. 
So now after this, Ezra 7.1, now after this in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, and then there are five verses I chopped um, that are all genealogy. Um, this Ezra, and we get to where the scripture began for today, right? This Ezra went up from Babylon. So something on the order of 60 years has passed between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, but the Lord moves again, and this time in Artaxerxes. Now you can see that in contrast to Zerubbabel, who was sent to rebuild the temple, um, Ezra, or even Nehemiah, who's later sent to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, Ezra is sent to rebuild the people of God, right? He's coming back. He's sent to rebuild right worship. Um, and why would Artaxerxes send a scribe skilled in the law of Moses for this purpose? Well, Ezra finds favor with Artaxerxes, as verse 6 underscores, because the hand of the Lord his God was on him, right? Indeed, lest there be any confusion, and we think it's because Ezra's just a great dude, right? Um, that same phrase is repeated again in verse 9. It's repeated again in verse 728, later in the chapter. It's repeated twice more in chapter 8. And if you were to keep reading into Nehemiah, you would see it repeated even more often. Now, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Indeed, it should be an enormous encouragement to us. Um, indeed, that's a big part of the reason why it, the account of Ezra has been preserved in Scripture. If you look at Romans 15:4, Paul writes, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. Right? Um, if you've been attending the uh, equipping class, which as Kevin pointed out, is uh, the adult Sunday school class, uh, for those of you aren't, who aren't initiated in Redeemer's lingo, um, you remember that this, that, uh, from the ongoing study of Ruth there, that the Old Testament is there for our instruction. Right? In it, we see the shadows of the gospel. We, we, we see what substitutionary atonement looks like through the Old Testament sacrifices. Okay? We see what redemption looks like in the story of Ruth. But you'll also note, well, you'll see that it's also a warning. Right? There are lots of warnings where God's pretty explicit about things. But you'll also note in 15.4 that it's for our perseverance and encouragement. Seeing how God has moved in the past, and in the case of Ezra restoring the temple and his people, we can rest in the fact that God is moving still. Right? that God is up to something, and then that something is a good something, right? That God's promises, and we should keep this in mind as a new year unfolds, that God's promises are big enough for whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in, right? And what an encouragement that is, right? All right, so God's sovereignty is clearly evident here in Ezra, but so too is our desperate need for God's word, because when Ezra makes it to Jerusalem, he encounters something that horrifies him. So in Ezra 9... Um, we see that after dedicating some utensils and treasures that Artaxerxes had sent for the temple, Ezra is approached by some officials and informed that the leaders of Israel are intermarrying with unbelievers. And Ezra responds in 9.3, And when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard, and I sat down appalled. Now, in our day and age, it seems a little bit weird, right? Why is this a problem? This might be true love, Right? What, what's the issue here? Why, do, why does Ezra tear his clothes and rip hair from his uh, head and his beard? Why can't people just follow their bliss and be left alone? Well, let's take a little whirlwind tour of what is informing Ezra's decision. So, to begin with, keep in mind that he's skilled in the law of Moses. So surely he would have known Deuteronomy 7.3, in which God had given explicit instructions to those about to enter the promised land, uh, warning them that intermarriage would lead to idolatry, right? Um, at the next one, I think that's where it is, right? Yeah, all right. But maybe things hadn't turned out that way, right? So we go ahead to Judges, and we see that 
Uh, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took for them, uh, to themselves uh, for wives, and their uh, own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Well, maybe this was a one-off, right? Because when a king comes, things are going to be much better in Israel. And they kind of are with David, but then Solomon takes over. And in 1 Kings 11, we see that Solomon held fast to his wives in love. It's not that he doesn't love his wife, wives. Though I don't know how he can love 700 wives and princesses. Um, nevertheless, I have trouble with loving one well, if I'm honest with myself here. Um, but his wives turned his heart, as, uh, turned his, uh, his heart away. If we jump to, to verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to uh, the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, uh, the abomination of the Ammonites. And it goes on. We're just sort of stopping there. It goes on to talk about the high places that he erected to Chemoth, etc. And here's the thing. Solomon is a pretty good dude, right? He wrote scripture. We have what he wrote in the Bible, right? And yet this intermarriage led him to embrace idolatry. And if you were to work your way through First and Second Kings, you would see that it didn't stop with Solomon. Uh, in First Kings 16, we see that Baal worship was introduced to Israel through Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, and on it goes. But the salient point here is that what Ezra encounters absolutely shocks him. And if you were to read Ezra 10, 18 to 44, you would see that Ezra named names, right? Um, and what's important about that list isn't that Ezra's particularly vindictive or anything, is that it included the political and religious leaders of Israel, the sons of the high priest, for instance. And Ezra's mortified because the very things that had led to Israel's apostasy and God's judgment on them that had resulted in the exile are appearing less than two generations removed from their return from exile. But this does beg a couple of questions. How did this happen so quickly? And why was it that Ezra was concerned with intermarriage when Israel's leaders hadn't been. Well, you get a hint of that in Ezra 9, 4, right? Um, then all who trembled at the words of the, uh, of the God of Israel because of the unfaithfulness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. I think it's the answer to both how people fell away so quickly and why Ezra was so concerned because all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. To be sure, uh, Ezra goes on to publicly rebuke uh, the men who had intermarried, and he instructs them to send their foreign, uh, foreign wives away. But he also reinstituted, and this is hugely important, the public reading of Scripture. You get the sense that the people hadn't been hearing the Word of God, that the Scriptures hadn't been read, right? So in Nehemiah 8, for instance, he gathers all the returned exiles uh, to the temple, and he reads from the Book of the Covenant from early morning until midday. And the people respond by acknowledging their sin and worshiping God, right? You remember similar responses of Israel to the public reading of God's word in the midst of sin in earlier times. Let me just offer one example here. You remember that the law gets lost for a while uh, during uh, the reigns of the kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord, to repeat a phrase that's oft used in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Um, but that it's discovered during the reign of King Josiah, who's one of the few really good kings of Judah, um, and it's discovered of all places in the temple, right? Go figure. Um, and he responds, when, when it's read to Josiah, he responds more or less like Ezra. He tears his clothes, and he laments the sin of his people, 
right? You can read that story in First King, in Second Kings twenty-two, and then in Second Kings twenty-three, he has it read publicly, and it convicts the people who agree to join Josiah in renewing their covenant with God and obeying what's written in the law. Indeed, one of the things that we see uh, throughout the Old Testament is that without the regular reading of Scripture, people drift from God, and they wind up in idolatry and generally doing what's right in their own eyes, which is, of course, how the time of the judges is characterized. Now, this is where it gets a little bit convicting for me, uh, because while I'm sorely tempted to identify with Ezra and Josiah, um, I suspect that in my own life, I'm at least as prone to be among the people doing what is right in their own eyes as I am among those who are clinging tenaciously to the Word of God. Uh, Indeed, far better men than me have fallen prey to cultural uh, values that are at odds with God's will. You can see this in lots of places. Uh, One particularly telling example comes uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. You can actually read about it in Acts 2. But where Paul, who's eager to contradict the false teachings of the Judaizers, uh, finds himself having to confront his good friends, right, Um, and fellow workers in Christ, Peter and Barnabas, whose identity as Jews had led them to get taken in, to be taken in uh, by the teachings of the Judaizers. You can read that in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. And again, here's the thing. If Peter, who had walked with Christ during his earthly ministry and had played a pivotal role in building the church, and if Barnabas, who had worked faithfully and tirelessly beside Paul, can be seduced by the rationale of their culture, but probably foolishly optimistic if we think that we can't be. But too often, we, and by we I mean me, but probably also you, uh, ignore that very real peril. Um, All of us, no matter where we live or or when we live, are like fish in water. We just don't recognize the culture around us, right? We take it for granted and we normalize its values. The fact that we're believers does not make us immune uh, to absorbing values that run counter to the kingdom. It wasn't all that long ago, in living memory, in fact, that many Christians endorsed segregation, right? It just seemed normal, not objectionable. It was just part of the culture. A couple of generations ago, divorce was shocking in Christian circles. Now, if the statisticians are to be believed, the numbers in evangelical churches don't differ all that much from those of unbelievers. We are bombarded, and this is true of every person in every culture everywhere, but we are bombarded by messages from every corner that normalize things that frame them in ways that make them appear natural, that make them appear appealing. And we seldom question them from political ideals, right? Who doesn't love individual liberty and the pursuit of happiness? People on the left, people on the right, everybody, they all agree on that, right? And here's the thing, if my marriage is getting in the way of those things, why shouldn't I be able to move on, right? Or entertainment, we seldom ask ourselves, what entertains us? But as now with kids, this is uh, important to me. In a way, maybe it wasn't before. But sex outside of marriage is now normative. It's normative in television. It's normative in movies. And as we immerse ourselves in these things, we can't help but get desensitized to it. I know, I often find myself laughing along, right? And if we're not paying close enough attention, the culture will define our values. And while things like sexual impurity might seem obvious to us, there are other ways in which cultural values prove less visible but we normalize them too. So for instance, in the church, the democratization of American Christianity that uh, that attended the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century did a lot of things that facilitated, for instance, the rise of Baptist and Methodist church denominations with lay ministries. But it also made the main currents of American Christianity far more individualistic and experiential, with the consequence 
that when I teach about the Puritans in my survey classes, I have to go out of my way to explain to stu- uh, their values to, to students who have trouble wrapping their heads around the corporate notion, the, the notion of sort of a corporate Christianity uh, in, 17th, in, the, in the 17th century, right? And I usually do this by giving them a call the, uh, a modern version of the Lord's Prayer, right? My Father who is in heaven, right? And they get it. They say, oh, we've normalized the individual nature of the faith, okay? Now, this as an aside is actually a reason uh, to study church history. It's why many churches, including Redeemer now, uh, employ creeds to ensure consistency with the historic message of the gospel and why those creeds come with citations to, uh, to Scripture much of the time. But here's the, uh, the million-dollar question, because if the church, too, can, in fact, inevitably does reflect the values of its culture, how then do we know if we're living lives that are pleasing uh, to God? Well, uh, we certainly are to examine ourselves. Indeed, before the Lord's Supper uh, this morning, Kevin will ask you to examine yourself, and of course you should. Uh, in doing so, he'll be drawing on 1 Corinthians 11. But earlier in the same letter, there we go, uh, so writing to the same group of believers, uh, Paul uh, writes, but it is a very small thing if I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Right? The fact that he wasn't aware of any sin didn't mean he wasn't guilty. And if your conscience can't exonerate you, what can? Well, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, it's the word of God. It's scripture that allows us to examine ourselves. And you look at the last part of that, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we need it. Now, oftentimes, the word of God is married with other ordinary means of grace, the faithful teaching and preaching uh, of pastors, uh, the teaching of Sunday school teachers, uh, of college ministers, right? Or in the case of Peter and Barnabas, through loving confrontation and correction. Um, But it's always predicated on the Word of God, right? Our need for it is so pressing that when Paul wrote Timothy uh, uh, with instructions for leading a church, he insisted that Timothy make it part of the regular worship service. So if you look at 1 Timothy 13, right, it says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Why the public reading of Scripture? Well, there have been weeks in my life, and maybe in yours, where the Scripture read aloud in a Sunday worship service might have been the only exposure I had to Scripture that week. Right? This would be a different lesson, but it needs to be read aloud. Right? Um, Our pressing need for God's uh, Word is why Redeemer preaches expositionally, walking through entire books of the Bible, and it's why we begin each sermon with the reading aloud of the scripture that we're, going to, uh, that we're going to be looking at. So we don't think we're here just to receive some good advice from Kevin, because I really like Kevin. But if our hope rests in Kevin's wisdom, we are in serious trouble, right? And it's why we need to be attentive to that teaching during the service and serious about it afterwards. If Paul instructed Timothy, and if you look at verse 11 there, to command and teach these things, um, We should come to church expecting to be commanded, right? Not by Kevin, but by Scripture. And we should be deliberate about that. Um, We should be measuring that teaching against Scripture. It's this attitude that led Luke to praise the Bereans in Acts 17, because if you look at the last part there, they first uh, received the word with all readiness, which is precisely how we should receive it. And then they searched the Scriptures daily uh, to see if uh, these things were so which is, again, a model for us. God's word, in short, is the only way that we can rightly assess 
the cultural waters in which we swim and discern whether we are leading lives pleasing to God. I think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul's command here is unambiguous. Do not be conformed to this world. But Paul offers it because we need the warning, because it's our default mode. Um, This is an either-or proposition. You are either being conformed to the world or you're being conformed to Christ. Okay? Um, Being conformed to the world happens passively. That's just what happens to us. Being conformed to Christ requires us to be active, actively applying the Word of God to our lives. Now, it's a little more complicated uh, because the Holy Spirit is working through this process and because God will never leave us or forsake us, even when we find ourselves in spiritual deserts. Nevertheless, as the laws of physics show us, right? If you're coasting, you're going downhill, right? Um, And we cannot help but be conformed to this world if we seek to do so in our own wisdom. We cannot renew our minds by the power of our wills. And our wisdom isn't sufficient uh, to discern what the will of God is. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death, God warns us in Proverbs 14, 12. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, he tells us through the prophet Isaiah. We need his word, his wisdom, and that requires us to come humbly, uh, relying on the Spirit and eager to hear it. And hearing entails a willingness to obey, right? Those of you with children may have used it in this way. I don't think you're hearing me, right? Kids, turn off the TV. I heard you. No, I I don't think you did, because the TV is still on. Let me try again. Turn off the TV, and I'll know they're hearing me when the TV is off, right? Right? And this is the attitude uh, that really matters to us as we approach the Word, because there is a way to read and hear God's Word that doesn't prove helpful. Think of the most religious people in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, those who spent more time than anybody else studying and teaching the Scriptures, but who often missed it entirely. Lots of reasons they missed it. They missed it because they were unwilling to practice its substance, right? They were unwilling to hear it. The rich young ruler who was happy to obey uh, the things that were easy for him, but he loved his money, more than the kingdom of God, or the lawyer uh, whom Jesus relates the parable of the Good Samaritan to, who got it right, who got the two big commandments right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself, but wanted to justify himself by carefully demarcating who was his neighbor and who wasn't. This desire to justify uh, themselves led them to interpret the law not in ways that pointed uh, to their need for God's grace, but in ways that they could ostensibly follow. Uh, and so feel justified. And by doing this, they turned things that were intended to be blessings, perhaps most obviously the Sabbath, into burdens for the people. And of course, they turned themselves into hypocrites. Now, obviously, we don't want to be like them, focusing so intently on the sign that we don't bother to look where it's pointing. The law and the prophets and the Old Testament, they all pointed to Christ, right? They all pointed to Christ. And yet when he's standing right in front of them, all they can do is point at the hand. They missed the Messiah, So how do we avoid the traps that they fall into? How do we ensure that we're approaching Scripture the right way in a way that will convict and encourage us in our faith? Uh, In light of what we just said, uh, we know we need to approach it humbly with a mind to heed it, and we know we can't approach it with a mind to justifying ourselves. Nor can we approach it to see if perhaps there's some wisdom that, you know, resonates with our own sense of what's right about the world, with our own political ideals, our own social ideals. And we certainly can't approach it with an eye to judging it. We can't, uh, to borrow C.S. Lewis's favorite, uh, or famous phrase, we can't put God in the dock, which is an allusion to the English courtroom where the accused stand in a dock. We don't get to put God on trial. It is not a dialogue when we come to the scripture. Our job is to listen. God is speaking. And we shouldn't be passive about this. We should be actively listening, hanging on every word. Where were you, God told Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
right? Uh, in the same chapter in Isaiah, in which, uh, which, uh, in which Isaiah notes that grass fades uh, and the flower withers, but the word of our Lord stands forever, which we uh, often close scripture readings with here at Redeemer, the prophet writes this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Uh, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer is, unless you're holding the waters of the oceans in your hand, it's not you, right? He's God, and we're not. So we must then, go ahead, Sam. We must then come humbly, listening, eager to discern what is true, and praying that the Holy Spirit will apply it in our lives. But how do we know for approaching the Scripture that way? Um, are there any measures since our hearts are so easily deceived? It turns out that, the, that there are. And we know we're getting it when we see more clearly the glory of Christ. Because this is what the Spirit does as he applies God's truth to our lives. We look at John 16, 13, and 14 here. When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus uh, promised, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. So as we increasingly see Christ's coming foretold in the Old Testament and marvel at the certainty of God's promises, as we see his amazing humility in identifying with us as sinners during his earthly ministry, as we are increasingly amazed by his love and willingly going to the cross for our sakes, as we find ourselves drawing comfort from the fact that he is ruling and reigning today, and as we anticipate his glorious return as a conquering king, well, now we're getting it. Okay. A second measure that we know things, uh, these things are true uh, is that our time in the Scripture uh, will make us keen to obey it and so glorify Christ. In the same passage in which Paul commanded Timothy to read Scripture aloud to the congregation, Paul enjoined Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely so that he will save both himself and his hearers. Not because Timothy could do any saving on his own. Obviously, that's not true. But because sound doctrine points us to Christ who does save and enables us to persevere so that we can live. Orthodoxy, in other words, should lead to a desire for orthopraxy. The Puritan Richard Baxter called the meaning of Paul's intent when he wrote to young ministers, warning them to watch their lives lest you, say with your, uh, lest you unsay with your life what you say with your lips. As a model, of course, this applies to us. Church, watch your speech. Church, watch your lives. So that when people look at you, look at us, they're willing to hear us. How seriously can we expect a message of grace to be heard from an ungracious person? How uh, a message of justice from someone who doesn't, seems indifferent to justice. A message of love from someone who's clearly selfish. Now, obviously, we'll never do this perfectly, but our lives should be characterized by repentance, which is simply acknowledging that God is right and we're not. And so we confess that that's true, and we express a genuine desire to be brought into conformity with what is right. Finally, we know we're getting it when we see our, our utter dependence on his word. When we take seriously Deuteronomy 8.3, which, of course, Jesus quoted to Satan during his temptation in the desert, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When we recognize that we will spiritually die without it, that our spiritual lives depend on it as much as our physical lives depend on food, when we really believe what Moses told all of Israel, take heed to hear all the words I have solemnly uh, declared to you this day. They are not idle words for you. They are your life. It's Deuteronomy 32.47. And so this brings us back to Ezra, who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And I love that expression because it, 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 it captures the deliberate intent that's required. And we see that Ezra approached it humbly, eager to hear what God said, in the sense that here is usually used in Scripture, 
right, with the expectation of obedience because he's going to practice it, right? And out of the overflow of that, he was eager to teach God's truths for the good of his people. By the time we gather again next week, it'll be a new year with all the excitement and anxiety that that attends. But if we're looking for true joy in the coming year, not happiness in the sense of good fortune, but real joy in the sense of an enduring assurance that all will be well because the God of the universe is at work in our lives for his glory and for our good. And you could do far worse than to remember Ezra. And so set your heart to study scripture, eager to submit yourself to its authority. This all seems clear enough on a Sunday morning, but of course during the year, during the week, it often isn't. In the silver chair, C.S. Lewis has a memorable passage where Aslan has given Jill four tasks and is about to blow her into Narnia. And he says this to her, in a moment I will blow, but first remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look and when, uh, when you meet them there. This is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. On Sunday mornings, as we gather here, the air does seem clear. But by Monday morning, it often looks thick with things not taking shape the way we'd like them to, the way we'd expect them to. And the only way we can successfully navigate that thick air is by remembering our utter dependence on Scripture for our spiritual health. And the degree to which we come again and again and again and again to Scripture is the degree to which we will be helped. And uh, the degree to which we ignore it is the degree to which we are literally starving ourselves spiritually. And so I commend Ezra to you as a model. May we as a church set our hearts to study Scripture in the coming year, to apply and practice what we learn there, and to go forth and teach it, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we would take advantage of the clear that we have when we gather together on Sundays, that we would hear the very word of God, that we would receive it and believe it and trust it, and that it would inform our souls as we leave this place, and that we would walk faithfully with you in the coming year. I pray that Redeemer will be a place where your word is read and taught and loved. Please give us the grace to remember to come back to your word plant deep within us a love for it, that it may nourish our souls in the year and indeed the years to come. Amen.